You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. We are the Cigar Nerds, bringing nerdy sophistication and geeky indulgence on all topics, including movies, video games, science, and pop culture news, all from the Nerd Cave Cigar Lounge. Find us on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, including esonetwork.com and cigarnerdpodcast.com. So fire up a cigar. It's time to get nerdy. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. We're going in a little bit different direction in this week's episode, and we're going back to a classic Universal film. Now it's one that Mark Maddox and I had talked about back in the uh, first season that we started Monster Attack, and this was one that I had actually planned on talking about last year, but uh, those of you who have been listening to Monster Attack and know of my my plight with uh, my apartment falling through and um, not having a place to live and having to uh, disband the studio and put it into storage for a few months until I could find a place to live, this is when we were going to be doing this show. It was uh, right around its release date, uh, which was in March of 1943. It would have been 80 years old. Well, when I finally found a place to live, and it was all the result of a, uh, a scandal that's been going on in this country for uh, for a while now, uh, with uh, these property companies coming in and buying up all the apartments, or most of the apartments, and jacking the rent up. Uh, and right now, they're, uh, the, the feds are going after them, and so is the state. Uh, it left a lot of us uh, without a home. I lived out of a spare bedroom for three months. Seemed like three years, <laughs> but we finally found a place not too far from where I was living, and it was exactly the price that I had budgeted for, and it was exactly the same size apartment. So it all worked out well. But our film this week, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, got shoved way down the list. So we're now playing catch up, and I'm almost a year late and uh, celebrating the 80th anniversary of this incredible film. This film also is very, very special to me personally, because, uh, you know, and you all know the story of, uh, you know, how my dad got me into uh, monster movies uh, when I was in the first grade. And, I, you know, I just I started sucking them up like a sponge. I also, uh, very early on after uh, being introduced to monster movies, as many of you know, got heavily into building monster models. All of the Aurora monsters, monster models, those great, great model kits, uh, the Ravel kits, the monogram kits, uh, all those classic ones. I had them all. Uh, in fact, for many, many years uh, in my home in Auburn, New York, and then in Raleigh, North Carolina, when we moved to Raleigh, I always had a designated area. It was usually uh, comprised of an old card table 
that had, uh, I mean, it was an old one that we wouldn't use for anything else because it had paint on it and stuff like that. You know, I had it covered with a you know plastic cover to protect it from any further paint or model glue. And that was my, you know, my building area. And I always had something going on that table. My first model was the Wolfman. And I built that before I even saw the movie, The Wolfman. One of my early models after The Wolfman was Frankenstein. We all knew about Frankenstein. You know, and I finally found other kids that were getting into monsters. We'd all heard, heard of Frankenstein now, now that we were all into this stuff. But it hadn't made its way on Monster Movie Matinee yet. So I built both of those model kits months before I actually got to see the movies. And then after seeing Frankenstein, you know, I was just, I was in love with the Universal films. I Now I'd seen Dracula and I had seen The Wolfman and the original Frankenstein. And I, I really, I, I don't remember specifically when I saw Bride of Frankenstein, but that was all around in this area too. But then came Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And this was an especially popular film. Now, it, it really was when it was released in 1943, even though the critics didn't care much for it. Uh, but then again, we've talked a lot about that. They, they, they didn't understand what, 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 what drove guys like us that loved these movies and the people back then. The fact that it was two classic Universal monsters meeting together in the same film, that was pretty cool stuff. That was really, really cool stuff for monster kids or anyone who was a fan of, of monster movies. So this would be the first time that I would see a film that had two classic monsters in it. And in 1943, when Universal pitched this to Kurt Siotomak, who wrote the screenplay, and you remember Kurt also wrote the screenplay for The Wolfman. They said, you know, we, we want to pair a couple of you know, classic monsters together and see how it see how it goes. Because uh, they felt like the studio was was financially hurting. In fact, uh, you know, there's some stories that report that they, they were almost in, you know, going into bankruptcy and they were trying to save the studio. And they thought that, you know, that, you know, the monster stuff was sort of wearing out. Started in 31, now we're 12 years later, and uh, they needed something different. They needed something new. And the powers that be at Universal also wanted to you know, aim their films towards a younger audience. Boy, have we heard that before. I mean, it's very, it's very similar to the, uh, to, to the discussions we've had on Hammer Films, what they went through uh, you know, 10 or 15 years into their great run of horror films as well. So they decided, let's put a couple of monsters together. And Frankenstein and uh, the Wolfman were the ones they went to. This film's produced by George Wagner. Now, George Wagner, a very, very popular name among Universal fans. And he's the one that produced and directed the Wolfman. So he was, he was the logical choice. You've got George Wagner, Kurt Siotomak, Good one-two combination from The Wolfman, which which up until this point was one of the most popular Universal films that they had ever produced. And it seemed like that would be a winning formula. And as it turned out, they were right. On this one, they were absolutely right because audiences took to this film like there was no tomorrow. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like this movie. And there's a lot of people that specifically mention 
Bela Lugosi's portrayal of the Frankenstein monster. Now, we've talked a little bit about this, and we talked a little bit about it when uh, when Mark and I did the show seven years ago. But I want to go a little more detail into that. This film is a sequel to two other Universal films. That's right. I said two other films. This is a sequel not only to The Ghost of Frankenstein, which up until this point was the last Frankenstein film that Universal had produced, but it was also a sequel to The Wolfman. And see, Adamak tailored the script in such a fashion that it would be fairly apparent that it it was a sequel to both of those films. So you have sort of a crossing, you know, you're coming to a crossroads. You've got the leg of the wolfman and the leg of Frankenstein coming together. Frankenstein meets the wolfman. And for the next two films after this, those two characters would meet again in the House of Frankenstein and the House of Dracula, which... This film sort of opened up what, what they called the, uh, the monster rallies. Because, you know, in, in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, you saw a whole bunch of other monsters in there as well. But it was a formula that worked very well for Universal. And it put them back in the game for a little bit longer. Now, I don't know if they were as financially hard off as, uh, as some of the stories suggested, but it did give them a good influx. This film did very, very well. So as a kid, when this film came out on the Monster Movie Matinee, I, I, I remember, absolutely remember the first time I saw this film. I was in total love with this. I loved the idea of these two main characters facing each other. And, and, and it moved along. It was, it was action-packed. It had suspense. And of course, the you know who's going to win? Would the Wolfman beat Frankenstein? Would Frankenstein meet the beat the Wolfman? Everything about this film was was just so much fun. Now, getting back to some of the negatives and why some people don't like this movie, and a lot of it has to do with Bela Lugosi as Frankenstein. Now, if you're familiar with the with the Ed Wood film, or Rudolph Gray's. Uh, uh, Nightmare and Ecstasy, which was about Edward Jr. And in that film, which is based on, on Rudolph Gray's book, Bella Lugosi is played by Martin Landau, says that, oh, you know, it's just grunting and groaning. I would never play that monster. But, you know, again, that, that was not exactly true. Bela actually had, was, was being considered for the original Frankenstein because he had done so well with Dracula. And he was their top horror star at the, at the moment. And there are some old films out there showing Bela in some test makeup for the Frankenstein monster. So he wasn't opposed to it. A lot of people say, well, I don't know why they put Bela Lugosi in there. He never wanted to play the monster. Well, I'll tell you why they put Bela Lugosi in as the Frankenstein monster. It's because if you remember the ghost of Frankenstein, Bela reprises his role as Igor. The role he played in Son of Frankenstein. Igor was someone who was hanged but survived a hanging. Became the monster's friend when when he found him. Buried in the sulfur pit underneath the uh, Frankenstein estate. And in the ghost of Frankenstein, they were going to put the brain of uh, one of the professors, one of the doctors that was helping 
helping them uh, study the Frankenstein monster. And the Frank Dr. Frankenstein in the, in the uh, Ghost of Frankenstein is the younger son, or the young son, all grown up now that we saw in Son of Frankenstein. And in Ghost of Frankenstein, we're introduced also to his daughter, Elsa, who we're going to meet again in this film. So you get sort of the, the, the timeline and the cast together, how this all comes together. So what, what does that have to do with Bella Lugosi? Well, Igor pulls a double cross on the doctors. See, you know, during this movie, he's sort of, you know, he's the guy they know that can sort of control the monster because they're buddies, like he did in, in, in Son of Frankenstein. They're in this uh, asylum now that, uh, that Dr. Frankenstein is working out of. And this is the only, this is the only weak part of the script is that we're not sure how Frankenstein, well, anyway, gets from the asylum back to the, the Frankenstein estate. But anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute. But getting back to Bela, Igor wants the body because his body's all crippled. It's all crippled up and his, his neck had been broken. And he wants a new body, and, and he knows that the Frankenstein monster's body is virtually indestructible. So he manages to get his brain put into the body. And then you know, the last 10 minutes of The Ghost of Frankenstein, when Dr. Frankenstein, thinking that it's his doctor friend, whose brain now is in the monster, finds out to his horror that it's Igor. I am Igor. And then there's a, a wonderful scene in there where, where Igor, you know, he, now he, he's got it out for the world because, because they were the people, you know, the people that hanged him and the world turned its back on him. And he, so he was, he wants to have his revenge on everybody. Starts tearing things up. They realizes he can't see. He goes blind. And one of the other doctors said, yeah, I don't think it may be because the blood type doesn't match up. Because with the brain we were going to put in there, it did match up. But Igor's blood type probably didn't match up with any of these. So the body's being, you know, it's rejected everything. And, you know, Igor yelling at the top of his lung, you know, what good is a new body with eyes I cannot see? And that's all Bela. So the monster that we meet in this movie is that monster. Because Bela tears everything up, sets everything on fire, and is destroyed in the fire. Now, like I said, one of the sort of the weak but where you have to suspend some disbelief is that somehow the monster's body makes it back to the caverns under the Frankenstein estate. In Visalia. This is the first time they would use the name Visalia for the town. Because up until this point, most of the action in the other Frankenstein movies took place in Germany. But keep in mind what year it is. This is nineteen forty-three. And the producers and and the and the bigwigs at, at, at Universal are a little concerned about setting this tale in Germany. Or making any reference to Germany whatsoever. So they made up the town of Vesalia, which was a, a Bavarian type town. They could do all the stuff they, they would normally have done. This is a big celebration, a big wine celebration that we see in this film. The Beaujolais Nouveau. 
And that's why Visalia becomes a, a major part. And then Visalia is the town where all the Frankenstein stuff takes place for House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, whatever they make reference to the Frankenstein monster where all that happened. So that's the only thing that doesn't exactly match up. But that's okay, because as kids, we didn't care. This movie is so much fun. Now, the fact that Bela, his character, is blind at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, Kurt Siodemak wrote that into the script. And not only wrote that in, but he also wrote in that the monster talked because the monster was talking at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein. And they shot it that way. But during a preview, every time the monster talked and we heard Bela's voice coming out of it in that thick Hungarian accent, people started laughing. Almost thinking like it was a spoof or a comedy. And it horrified the bigwigs at Universal's like, well, we can't have that. I can think of some other things they could have done. Maybe dub a different voice in. That wouldn't have made people laugh so much. But if you remember at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, Bela used his Igor voice. I am Igor. And the audiences just couldn't accept that. So they just simply took that track out. And that's why there's times in this movie you see the the monster's lips moving, but you don't hear anything. And because of that, any reference to the fact that the monster is blind is now removed, because there was a big scene in the original before the, before that you know where the monster was still talking and all that, where Larry Talbot, who finds the monster, and again, folks, I think everybody knows the storyline. I will say I'm going to spoil everything if you do not know this story. I think if I spoil it, it really doesn't matter because this is a fun movie to watch. But uh, So I'm going to be jumping all over the place and not doing like a traditional storyline thing like I usually do. But there was a scene where after Larry Talbot, who has gone on a tear as the Wolfman, finds the monster in this in one of the most beautiful sets that they ever made for a Universal film. One of my favorites, the ice set. Wonderful set. And he finds finds the monster encased in some ice and busts him out of it. They build a big fire and uh, have sort of a fireside chat. Now, con and, uh, contemporary audiences have not seen this footage. They, they cannot find the footage. People have been looking for it for decades. I would love to see this, where the monster tells of what happened. It was Igor. He's Igor. And he went and he went blind. There was a problem. And so for the rest of the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman footage, the monster is blind and sort of staggers around. And uh, this is the thing that a lot of the critics, and I'm not talking about like the, the writing critics, but just people who do not like this movie will get out of it. Oh, Bill, it just stumbles around. Yeah, that's how he was directed by Roy William Neal, because they shot all of this footage under the impression that the audiences would know that he was blind. And of course, when they, when they, when they took the dialogue, Bella's dialogue out of the movie, well, then that's wonderful scene. And, and, and from what I've read of people that did, that worked on the film that saw that scene said it was an incredible scene. 
between the two of them, a great scene between Lon Chaney Jr. and Bela Lugosi with the monster and, and, and now Larry Talbot talking in this wonderful set, this incredible ice set you know, about their plights. Where all that is laid out, and that's all gone. They just take that scene totally out. Of course, how can they put it in there if they don't want the monster to speak? And this is where I, I, I'm sort of saddened that somebody didn't think about the fact, well, let's just put another voice in there. Easily explained, just because Igor's brain is in the monster doesn't mean he has to sound like Igor. It's a totally different body. You know, the the the, the larynx and the vocal cords and stuff would be totally different. And he could have just found someone to, you know, dub it over. And I don't think audiences would have had a problem with that. I wouldn't have had a problem with that. But anyway, that's the only thing that, that I wish, I wish they had done. But it's still a fun movie. I'm still in love with this movie as a kid. This is before I knew any of this stuff. I didn't learn any of this until I was an adult, you know, about the, about the, uh, fact that the monster should have been blind and stuff. I didn't see Ghost of Frankenstein until I was in high school. It's like one of the last Frankenstein movies I saw. This one I saw a lot. And that's now one of my typical 10 to 15 minute roundabouts coming back to why this film was so special to me. As a kid, not only, you know, did it match up Frankenstein and the Wolfman, but the monster movie matinee people knew that this was a popular film among us kids, among monster kids. They'd show it at least twice a year, sometimes three times a year. I mean, it showed probably more than any other monster movie I saw in the venue in New York that I saw at Channel 3 out of Syracuse that had the actual monster movie matinee. And all the others sort of picked up the ball, too, and realized that this was a very, very popular film amongst fans of Universal Horror. So they showed it a lot. And every time I saw it in the listings that they were going to show it, oh, man, it was like, yes. Folks, I'm still that way. I went back and watched this film yesterday. I'd watched it a few weeks ago when I was trying to, you know, get my schedule back in order. I'm still getting stuff unpacked and, you know, straightening out that three months that we had to take off when we didn't have a production studio get everything caught up. And if I wanted to watch that film again today, I probably would. I just love watching that movie. And there's a lot of kids like me that, that felt the same way. So this will always be a very, very special film. Is it the best Frankenstein film that Universal did? No. No. In my mind, that's a toss-up between the original Frankenstein and the son of Frankenstein. Those two, I thought were the strongest of the, you know, all of them. But this is the one I love. <laughs> is it? Is this the most popular Frankenstein movie that I saw at Universal? Yes. Now, I know there's some people out there saying, yeah, but what about having Costello meet Frankenstein? Well, I don't put them in the same ballpark because that was more of a spoof. And I liked that movie too. I liked them all. And as many of you know, I, I, I mean, I, the House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, I love them too. They're not strong films and, and they were definitely, you know, the weaker entries into the whole franchise. But this one, I can just watch over and over and over again. A great cast that also involved Alona Massey, Hungarian actress. Fascinating life she had. She grew up very poor in Hungary. She talks in her memoirs. She she was with us for uh, in, uh, up until the early 70s. 
Uh, talk about as a child, she never tasted meat until she was almost seven years old. And, uh, you know, when asked how she didn't fall victim to, you know, the Hollywood curse of becoming a, a very, she was very, very popular, very beautiful actress. And she's playing the role of uh, Elsa Frankenstein, who we had met in The Ghost of Frankenstein. And this is sort of a situation like uh, happened with The Bride of Frankenstein, where you had Mae Clark replaced by Valerie Hobson, and Alona Massey replaced the gal that played Elsa in The Ghost of Frankenstein. The producers just thought it would be better that they would not use the same actress again. And she does a great job. But getting back to my original point, Alona said in, in some of her memoirs and, and interviews, since she grew up so poor, never knowing you know if she was going to eat or not as a child. So having a profession, a house, and food on the table, what else did she need? So she was very, very down to earth, and, and other actors and actresses that worked with her just uh, said she was just a joy to be around. Now we get to meet Patrick Knowles, a very familiar name to Universal and Monster Movie fans, English-born actor, made his film debut in 1932 and always played a heartthrob or a leading man in most of the films that he was in. His film career extended through from the 30s all the way to the 70s. Just a very likable guy. And he plays a doctor in this film, Dr. Mannering. So let's let's do a little timeline thing here because this is one of the strongest parts of the whole movie. And the part of the movie that when I saw for the first time as a kid, I was hooked. Because the film opens up on the heels of The Wolfman. So this is when we realize that this is definitely a sequel to The Wolfman. We've got two grave robbers breaking into the crypt of the Talbots. And if you look close enough, you'll notice that one of them is Jeff Corey in an uncredited role. So if you're a fan of Jeff Corey, I'm a big fan of his. You'll see him in one of his early, early roles. He, he would show up in a lot of monster movies. And they're there to break in and get the, uh, get the jewelry and the gold that's got to be buried with Larry Talbot. They find, you know, the grave's sitting out there, or the, the, the vault is sitting out there, and they pop the lid on the vault, and they can't believe that uh, that he looks like nothing has happened, like he's just asleep. The other grave robber is Freddie Jolly. I mean, that's the character's name. Cyril Delvante, who you will see in a ton of stuff. And then he made a lot of American films later on in his career. Did a lot of a lot of monster movies, and he says, "Yeah, well, he's you know can't ever die, really." You know, thinking about the uh, the legend of the werewolf, the body is all covered in wolf's mane. Wolf's mane. What's all that about? And then, of course, the camera points out the window, and we see it's a full moon. So it's getting a little tense in there. This is this is a wonderful scene, the way it's lit. So spooky, creepy with them working there around there. And there's Larry Talbot, old Lon Chaney Jr., just lying there. has not deteriorated at all. And slowly, while they're getting this ring and then stuff, one of his hands starts moving up. And he grabs Freddy's hand. Now, they could have played this over the top, but they didn't. They played it very naturally. Of course, Jeff Corey's character, who's never never called by name, he just bolts. He just takes off. 
they're not going to hang around that. But when Freddy realizes that the corpse of Larry Talbot has him, he just looks at he just looks at the other grave robber and goes, "Help me!" He can hardly get it out of his mouth. He is so terrified. And now we know what's going to happen after that. That opening scene was so good. And it still holds up today. I'm just mesmerized when I was a kid. First time I'm seeing this, it's like, oh, yes, I am so there. And of course, we know that Larry Talbot now goes on a tear because it's a full moon and he's the Wolfman. And he never really was dead. He was just sort of in a state, I guess you could call it a state of suspended animation. But a policeman finds him lying in, in, in the middle of the night, part of a small town. It's Cardiff, which is in Wales. So now all of a sudden he's, he's in Wales. If you remember the Wolfman, um, he was in a, in a village not far from London. Police officer first thinks that he's just a drunk and sees this big gash on his head. He goes, gee, where'd that come from? Well, if you remember in the Wolfman, his father used a silver cane to beat him supposedly to death at the end of that film. So this is this is where he was bashed in by that cane. And that's where he meets Dr. Mannery in the hospital. Identifies himself. He remembers he's Larry Talbot. He doesn't remember anything else. We're introduced to the police inspector, Owen, who's played by Dennis Huey, another longtime British actor that we see in a lot of monster movies. Oh, by the way, I ought to mention that the director of this film Roy William Neal, I did mention his name earlier, is probably best known for directing the last 11 films in the Sherlock Holmes series that starred Basil Rathbone. So at this point, he's sort of treating it like that. Sort of like a, you know, like a, like a crime mystery. As Talbot's trying to tell him something happened. He, he remembers now that he's, he turns into an animal. The doctors don't believe him. They go investigate. And then they find there's something weird going on because the grave, you know, they find when they go to Talbot's grave that it's been broken into, there's a dead man lying next to it. And then Talbot escapes from the hospital. They'd put him in a straitjacket, treating him like he was insane. And he bit through the straitjacket and escaped. And so now the story bounces back and forth. Now we're going to be back into the Frankenstein side of the story because Larry seeks out Maliva who was the gypsy woman who watched over Bela Lugosi, Bela the vampire in, in that film, in The Wolfman. Or they, not, not the vampire, I mean, Bela was a werewolf. Maria Openskaya, she reprises her role as Maliva and tells Larry she'll watch over him. She says she can't help him, but she can watch over him and protect him. But she knows a man who can help him, and that man is Dr. Frankenstein. And so they're going to, uh, they're going to head out there and try to find him. In Visalia, and the story takes them there, and uh, they find the uh, they find the ruins of Doctor Frankenstein, and of course Larry has another transformation because another full moon comes to pass, and he kills some people. The interesting thing is that the wolf the Wolfman does all the killing in this movie. The Frankenstein monster doesn't kill anybody in this movie, but uh, the townspeople are chasing the wolf. One of the townspeople is played by Dwight Fry. Yes, that Dwight Fry. This would be Dwight's last film. He would die about two months after this film was released. After a long, long career with Universal Studios. And while chasing the, the Wolfman back to the ruins of uh, 
Dr. Frankenstein's former residence. The Wolfman falls through the uh, the floor. And remember, that house burned up too. And that, that's what puts him into the ice cavern when he wakes up as Larry Talbot and he finds the monster. And the monster shows him where the Frankenstein book is because he finds out that Dr. Frankenstein is dead when he and Believer first get into town. They're not well received when they mention that name. And where the monster is able to find this secret compartment in, in the, the ruins where the book is supposed to be, it's not there. But Larry finds a picture of Elsa. And he figures if anybody knows where that book is, she will know. He arranges through the mayor to meet her under the pretense that he wants to buy the property. But then when he gets one-on-one -on -one with her, he, he, he levels with her. He says, no, I really just want that book. And she is totally opposed to that. She doesn't want to go on that property anymore or whatever. But she eventually has a change of heart. When Dr. Bannering shows up during the big wine festival that we were talking about, and that party is crashed by the monster <laughs> who shows up as well. And of course, Larry Talbot runs and gets the monster and loads him up on a cart. This is a great scene in this movie too. And they ride off into the, into the wilderness. Well, back to the, back to the ruins. And of course, the townspeople just want to destroy everything. Now that the monster's back, now it's really bad. But Elsa has a change of heart and says, no, I'll show you where the, where the, uh, where the ruins are through, I could take it to the ruins because Mannering shows up and he's, he's wanting to help Larry Talbot. And now he realizes there is something to Larry's story. And Larry tells him, I am looking for the journal of Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Well, in, in this case, it would be Dr. Henry Frankenstein. He knew the secrets of life and death. And I want to die. I just want to die. And that brings all of them into the ruins. And Elsa does know of a secret little part of that compartment where the book was supposed to be. That opens up another secret compartment that has the book. And Mannering now realizes that this is for real. And he convinces the town people, who still just want to destroy everything. There's one townsperson who just wants to blow up the dam that is, you know, damming up the water so that, because it's like it had its own hydroelectric plant, in a sense. It could generate its own electricity. He just wants to blow up the dam and just wash everything away. But Mannering convinces the mayor and the other people. He says, look, if you trust me, now having read this book, I know how to kill the monster and I'll take care of all of your problems. And that's what he sets out to do. And he, and he, and he restores a lot of the equipment and there's a lot of equipment that goes back up to the, to the ruins where they're staying. And uh, of course, the townspeople are a little antsy about that. But the mayor says, we got to trust this guy. What it so often happens in these Frankenstein movies, at least in the universal ones, Mannering's got it all hooked up. He's got he's got uh, Talbot hooked up to the machines, and the monster hooked up to the machines. And you know, I won't go into all the details, but he's going to channel all their energy off, sort of in a reverse polarity type situation that's explained to us, so they can both die. And he can't do it. He can't do it to the monster. He's got to see it through, and he ends up reversing it and making the monster stronger. And of course. Elsa has just said, well, no, you're making him stronger. This is awful. You can't do that. And then everything goes south because the monster starts going nuts. Talbot turns into the Wolfman, and now you've got the Wolfman meeting Frankenstein. And the big fight at the end that we've all been waiting for. And Manning, Mannerly and uh, Elsa are able to get out. And one of the townspeople who wanted to just blow up the dam 
has secretly gotten some some dynamite and explosives. He crawled up on the dam and set it and blows up the dam. And so while the fight is going on, yeah, we never do find out, did the Wolfman win or did Frankenstein win? No, because all the water comes rushing in and washes it all away. And that will set the table for House of Frankenstein, which would be up next. I love this film, folks. It's just so much fun. I didn't even tell you half of what goes on in this. And, I, you know, like I said, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to give you a whole timeline on this. And I think a lot of you have seen this film. And I really wish for the folks that, that maybe didn't like this film and didn't like it because maybe because of the what they thought was a bad performance of the monster by Bella Lugosi, knowing all of the details behind that now. Oh, if they could only find that old footage that's been missing for 80 years and go back and put that back in there like it originally called for in Siadamax script and redub the dialogue. This would be a whole different movie. Be even better. But people have been looking for that footage for, like I said, decades, 80 years. And is so often the case with uh, situations like that where, you know, studios didn't save deleted scenes like that. Like we've got now where you could put them on a DVD or a Blu-ray. They just threw them away. It's a shame. I, for one, would love to have seen seen this film totally remastered again with those scenes and another actor doing Bela's lines as the monster. So it wouldn't be funny. What a movie that would be. But still, folks, 80 years later, this movie's pretty good. And will always be a very, very special one to me as a kid. Because it just tagged me so hard. And again, a lot of it had to do with that first scene with the, uh, with the Wolfman coming back to life. You watch that, you know, at midnight or so, and turn all the lights off and stuff. That is a spooky, spooky scene. And this is one of my favorite Frankenstein films. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman from 1943. Happy belated 80th anniversary. And we're looking for some more f- films, as, as we told you last few weeks, that are celebrating big anniversaries. Now. It's amazing to me that so many of these films that I grew up with as a monster kid are celebrating their 50th or 60th or 70th or even 80th. Or, well, we, Mark and I did one that was celebrating its 90th anniversary. It's just incredible. Just incredible. You know, last year, the original King Kong, 90 years old. Wow. These films hold up so well over the years. So, folks, thanks for indulging me on uh, playing catch-up here with Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And we'll be back with you again next Monday for an all-new episode of Monster Attack. Thanks for your support. Have a great week. And 2024 is off to a really good start. I think it's going to be a good year. And I hope it's a good year for you, too. See you next Monday. Pardon the interruption. We'll bring you back to your podcast in just a moment. But first, promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. In the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, your pizza delivery guys, Dan, Sean, and Paul, serve you a slice of life. As we discuss literally anything in the universe. Conspiracy theories. Movies that we've liked. Women in comedy, voice actors, film directors and producers, authors. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. 
Wednesday I'm here with you people. It's wild. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.